Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. Well, there was a large crowd gathered in Harlem this afternoon. For some of the reaction there, correspondent Bill Plant. There are 40,000, perhaps 50,000 people at Mount Morris Park in Harlem. It really was like a sea of people. This movie blew me away. It's going to blow everybody away. It might be one of the most important music documentaries I've ever seen. Definitely entertaining, and you need to see it in a theater, and you can, or later on on Hulu. It's called The Summer of Soul. What is that? In 1969, sure, we've all heard about Woodstock, but at the same time, there was a concert that drew a half million people for a celebration of culture and music and then some. Uh, highlights for me of this movie, footage you've never seen before of Sly and the Family Stone. There's your big Northern California connection. And also Stevie Wonder. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us on Yeah, Uh-Huh with Lisa. And Phil. This week, we've got our frequent flyer, Aaron, joining us again. Ahoy. And the gentlemen are predominantly the gentlemen, since I actually did not get to see the um, the show yet. Yeah. They're going to be discussing the summer of soul or when revolution could not be televised. Yes. Harlem Cultural Festival in Mount Morris Park. So, gentlemen, have at it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so the subtitle right. of the movie is Or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And that's a direct play of a song by, I'm hoping you can help me out here. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised is a poem and song by Gil Scott Heron. Scott Heron first recorded it for his 1970 album Small Talk at 125th and Lennox on which he recited the lyrics accompanied by congas and bongo drums. A re-recorded version with a full band was the B-side to Scott Heron's first single, Home is Where the Hatred Is, mm. from his album Pieces of a Man in 1971. It was also included on his compilation album, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, in 1974. All these releases were issued on Flying Dutchman production re- record label. Um, excellent. It sounds like a beatnik kind of mm-hmm. thing, just you know, spoken word and drums, right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. The the the, uh, the sound yeah. and tenor of that uh, song, yeah, beat like beat poetry, but it does seem to almost have a uh, Black Panther, um, you know, yeah. sound to it. You mm-hmm. know, it's very defiant, very almost militant. Yeah, not unlike Nina Simone. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> Let's go ahead and play. Let's go ahead and play a few seconds of the revolution will not be televised. Just to set the tone. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the point from 29 District. The revolution will not be televised. So, um, that's a little backstory here. Um, During the summer of love in 1969, approximately the same time that Woodstock was taking place in upstate New York, which has been well chronicled, um, both in movies and podcasts and books. Um, it's forever indelibly etched in our minds, part of the culture. At the same time, in Harlem, New York, there was a six-week-long celebration of Black culture and achievement called the Harlem Cultural Festival in Mount Morris Park. And over the course of six weeks, some of the greatest musicians of that time formed. And uh, I was reading that parts of these performances were televised. 
ironically, <laughs> like a couple mm-hmm. hours of it actually did find its way on local television. Um, but for the most part, uh, the, the film that was taken 40 hours of musical performances by some of these amazing uh, groups and individual performers was stored in someone's basement, a man named Carl Knudsen, who was the owner of the jazz label Storyville, kept it in his basement for uh, some 50 years. And we're talking about performances by people like Stevie Wonder and Nina Simone and Mahalia Jackson and um, The Fifth Dimension, B.B. King. This was not the first Harlem Cultural Festival. There had been a couple events previous to this that were organized by different people, but Tony Lawrence was sort of the flamboyant engineer of the 1969 incarnation of the festival. And he's the one that brought together a lot of these acts. And uh, he was the MC. The MC, correct. And his face is all over this documentary. Yeah. Uh, very outfits. Yeah, he has some crazy outfits, fringe jackets and uh, sunglasses, I think at times. And, uh, large collar shirts. Yeah, it's glorious. Yeah, right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the music in it is just uh, fantastic. And the, the reason I got onto it is because, Aaron, you told me that it may be the best documentary that you had yeah. seen. There wasn't even a music discussion to begin with, I don't think. Yeah. It's like a scientist may be close to discovering the fifth dimension kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and um, mm-hmm. someone commented with uh, with uh, I guess fifth dimension playing Age of Aquarius. And Bill right. said, "I wish they'd, I wish they would always th- wish they'd have a reunion." Yeah, and I said, "Have you seen Summer of Soul?" And uh, so now that you have, uh, oh, it was better than a reunion of the fifth dimension would have been. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Seeing that, okay. seeing that footage. Um, when you think of like some of the best doc- uh, music documentaries of all time. You know, I think of uh, Stop Making Sense, I guess. You know, it's very uh, critically acclaimed. and uh, It's um, a good one. Yeah, The Last Waltz. Um, but, yeah, this one right here, just because of the rarity of it, the fact that it was buried for so long, and the social significance of it, and the quality of the film. And the performances. Anything, the performances, you know. Uh, starting. This, I think with, this is the best. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Starting with the, the Stevie Wonder very early yeah. on, his performance. Um, <laughs> it cracked me up. He, 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 you see all these umbrellas, and it's you know, it's raining. People got their their, their big hats on and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And Stevie Wonder's like, "Oh, it's raining, y'all." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. But he did "Shooby Dooby Doo Da Day," <laughs> and then uh, there's also a great um, visuals of him playing drums. If I could find something shocking and jarring to someone visually, that would be my beginning. A 19-year-old Stevie Wonder playing drums is pretty hard to forget. He's really coming into his own. Yeah, he's no longer little Stevie Wonder. And this performance here is is him realizing his powers. Putting on a show with his uh, musical... Yeah, he he was like led over to the drum kit by a guy holding an umbrella over him. Right. Right, and he. Uh, I got a kick know. out of that scene. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, uh, these guys. He, I mean, he's he's a musical genius, not just uh, he's not just a writer, a singer, and uh, you know, oh, nice. keyboard player. You know, he can he's also a harmonica player, bass player. Mm-hmm. Right, vocalist. And and this was before songs, uh, songs in the key of life, right? Yeah, that was from the seventies. Yeah, that was probably seventy two. I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he was like um, still coming off the little Stevie, you know, the little Stevie Wonder um, phenomenon. Yeah. Chris Rock addressed this mm-hmm. in the movie. He said uh, he was, he could have gone the path of just uh, being lazy and playing the same Motown hits for the rest of his life, or he, he could uh, evolve, you know. Yes, but if he hadn't, if he had done that, then would he be? Then he'd have been the Temptations, yeah. Yeah. Right. He'd have been doing uh, yeah. cruises, you know, sort yeah. of uh, smaller gigs, not yeah. becoming. He'd be doing whatever, whatever um, 
Smokey Robinson's doing right now. Right. <clears throat> I guess it's somewhat uh, demeaning to suggest. Is Smokey Robinson still with us? Yeah, yeah. He's still okay. tourists. Oh. Around here. Oh, anyway. sm- okay. I'm he thinking lives in of, the valley. I'm thinking of somebody else. I think he lives in Calabasas. Yeah. Oh, okay. Doesn't everyone? Mm. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Hasn't everyone? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm just mean reality TV wise. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not know you had also been a resident thereof. No, for a few years. Calabasas. Okay. So yeah. the film mm-hmm. definitely demonstrates uh, what's going on culturally, politically. I thought there was a moment in that film that really highlighted the difference between uh, the political climate then is violent and is is chaotic as we've always believed it was late at the you know growing up and, and, and hindsight with Vietnam and everything but I still feel like that the the level of um, anger that exists today has taken it up a notch and that's when um, you know the organizer Tony Lawrence introduced the um, Republican mayor of New York at the time John Lindsay as his blue-eyed soul brother. Um, I just don't see that something like that happening <laughs> so yeah. much today. What do you think? Of, what do you think? They, they described him as a liberal Republican. Which you mm. don't hear of it all today. No. Yeah. You don't hear that in particular, but you mm-hmm. also don't hear um, that, that sense of uh, familiarity. Or, yeah. they, they liked him because he was comfortable coming into the black community and, you know, always did his best to represent for them and you know, mm-hmm. get him whatever help he could, what, yeah. what they needed. I'd like to read more and about him. I'd like to know a little bit more about him, about why. Yeah, seems like an interesting guy. Yeah. Mayor for eight years, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like 63 to, or 66 to 73, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. But there were... Um, Number, you know, it was interesting. It was great to see BB King. You know, he looked very young, very vibrant. You know, playing Lucille's guitar. Yeah. Um, that was a really good performance. Sounded really crisp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've always been a BB King fan. He, you know, my, my sister Terry had had an album, and you can't I can't not like BB King. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he played "Why I Sing the Blues." I'm sure yeah, friend Dave would one. love that one. You know, <laughs> and. Uh, I thought that the section on they spent a lot of time talking to the members of the fifth dimension and Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis in particular, who were the like lead of the you know, band and everything. And they um, they showed Marilyn sitting there watching her performance and commenting on it. And you, you said something about that earlier. You made a comment about that, Aaron. Um, yeah, she was uh... She was getting emotional watching it. She said, we were just so happy to be there. Yeah. Um, mm. I guess they, uh, a lot of people thought that the fifth dimension were white. And yeah. They, were, uh-huh. they weren't really, you know, and they came out on the pop charts instead of the R&B charts. Mm-hmm. So mm. uh, they were, they were really shocked. The crowd, I think, when they, when they looked up and saw that, you know, it was an all black, you know, group of singers. Right. Mm. And, uh, Kind of yeah, like the, the, one, uh, the one guy in there talked about how uh, Marilyn McCoo was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. He mm-hmm. And when the show was he over, is he very beautiful. He didn't want it to end. But mm-hmm. to, to be more specific, he didn't want her to leave. Yeah. Um, he said it was his first crush. Oh. So Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo continued to record after the fifth dimension, I believe. But Yeah, what was their hit? Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I confused them it. with Peaches and Herb. It yeah. wasn't that that was reunited, right? Reunited. Was, yeah. But it was Herb something like that, wasn't it? You don't have to be a star, baby, to be in my show. That's that's oh, okay. what they Yeah, yeah. I was I was looking and I couldn't find the list of songs because apparently that's not just one. They won Grammys for a bunch. They may have, but that's the one I was. Yeah, let me tell you. There's a picture of her from 1996, and well, she looked great in the movie. Yeah, she still looks good. I always thought she was very attractive. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the fifth dimension, uh, apparently Billy in particular was not uh, happy that, that people kind of uh, in, in, from the community didn't really um, embrace the fifth dimension's music that much. Or he didn't like that uh, identification maybe. that uh, She still looks good. People were. Um, okay. mm-hmm. but, but let's play a little bit of the 
of Age of Aquarius. We don't hear that on the radio very much anymore. But... This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So I thought it was interesting that the they talked about the actual payment that the performers got for the performances. And they, and they, they talked about Sly and the Family Stone, for instance, getting paid $2,500 for their appearance, mm-hmm. which is, seems like a drop in the hat. And I know you could uh, extrapolate that to today's mm-hmm. money, and it probably seemed a little, little bit more reasonable, but... Uh, when you think of a band of that stature, you would think you might have to go, you know, yeah, ten, fifteen. They <laughs> got, they got nothing. They got it for nothing. They got slime the family stone for twenty five hundred. Yeah, twenty five hundred dollars. And the most expensive act was uh, that Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia 10, Jackson, 000. correct. Um, so, mm. but I, I also when when I hear that, I, it also makes me think that well, you, you think of uh, they probably all wanted in. They probably all wanted to be part of. Probably wasn't. So the th- another thing that's interesting to me about the concert is very much like Altamont. They opted. It was a little different in that at <laughs> Altamont, the Hell's Angels were actually proactively hired to uh, provide security for that show. Turned into a disaster, of course, and someone Rolling stabbed stone. to death. Yeah. In this instance, the police did not oh, want to so provide great. security for the festival because of uh, violence that had, had, had broken out after the death of Martin Luther King previously. They kind of took a standoffish approach to it. So the um, Black Panthers, under the leadership of a Black Panther named Bullwhip, actually provided security for the first week of the um, festival, uh, which I don't know what happened in that week to make the police change their mind, but they took, they resumed control of uh, the security starting with the second week. But here's the thing about it. I'll tell you why, because nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. That's That that was the Mm -hmm. point I was getting to three, uh, six weeks, 300,000 people, not a single incidence of violence. I don't think that's the case at Woodstock. I think there's probably uh, oh, there's plenty. <laughs> there was plenty going on at Woodstock, for instance, and you know we talked about Altamont. You know, um, so that's pretty impressive when you think yeah. about it. That really was a peaceful celebration. In that one interview with Questlove, he said that um, if there would have been violence, everybody would have heard of the Harlem Festival. Oh mm. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't disagree because they'd have had to make sure everybody heard it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it would have been amplified. Mm-hmm. Um, it it sure. did look like the best time in the world. It yeah. did. It did. It did. And it was a mm-hmm. uh, uh, very much an African American um, celebration. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was and Latino. Yeah, mm. yeah. But you know what I love about that era, Puerto Rican, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved when I was a kid. I loved Sesame Street. Yeah, I loved <laughs> the whole multicultural inner city. Um, I never really equate or put that together but yeah new york city gives i got a sesame street vibe right well that's kind of what it's based on right yeah like a borough or a neighborhood in it's definitely a new New york York. borough right and when when i was watching this documentary i was like that just evoked those memories of me that's something i've always um identified with it's clearly a new york place but i don't think that i associated you know sesame street in my childhood with new york city yeah. Well, why would you? Until until you look at it, like I just right, did, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> Harlem surely is a little bit more dangerous than than oh, yeah. Sesame Street. Up, I guess, being right. real or imaginary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I always found comfort. Like when I went to college, <laughs> when I went to college, <laughs> and I was like by myself and kind of scared shitless. I started watching Sesame Street again. Mm-hmm. You know, nice. <laughs> just for, they had that. By uh, then, they probably had Elmer. Had Elmo? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. That's yeah. Mm. You know, they were in reruns, so you get the same, you know. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, by, I, by the time I had kids, they had added Elmo. 
Well, and the thing that um, kind of amazes me is they re-released on uh, DVDs mm-hmm. um, uh, the Sesame Street, the original Sesame Streets, but they yeah. read it at PG-13 ah, because of, you know, da- Stranger Danger and uh, the playground equipment was metal and it wasn't like, you know, lined with with like those you know Uh what's really funny is my mother told me that when I was the age to watch Sesame Street I was getting like maybe three or four and uh, my mother asked me well why don't you like to watch Sesame Street and I was like because it's patronizing right so I was kind of a pain in the ass but anything things like that they they always evoke uh going to summer fair with Terry you know we've had Mm -hmm. Terry on and yeah. the things that she would expose me to. Being exposed to culture. Oh, this Anytime would you go to Clifton, be a good subject to include her in. Right. Yeah. Clifton, right. So what, you know, the performances, I think, are what make this uh, film special. You know, they were lost yeah. the time for 50 years. When you think about that, that's pretty Tragic. staggering. <laughs> you wonder what else got erased in yeah. the course of the last hundreds of years. Or what got cut out of the film. There's 40 hours. Yeah, it's forty hours of video. That's what else I want to know. Uh, where's the extra scenes? Yeah, maybe the DVD mm-hmm. version is going to have a lot more. Mm-hmm. I think I think that would you know uh, yeah or, or sequels. Yeah, yeah, because they've only showed mm-hmm. one or two performances at most by most of these performers, and you get you know that their sets were at least probably half an hour or something, twenty five minutes at mm-hmm. least. Well, and I mean there might be like um, damage footage. It was in somebody's basement. Right. right. You know? Yeah. Could be yeah. five hours at the back of somebody's head or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oops. I'm sure there's more good stuff out there, but I'm sure that a lot of it was, yeah, unusable. Yeah. So what was your favorite performance? My favorite performance? From the film? Mm-hmm. Um, probably Nina Simone. Uh-huh. Mm. Quite recently... There was an article in the New York Times on Lorraine Hansberry and a play downtown off Broadway called To Be Young, Gifted and Black, produced by her. And um, there was a picture of her there. And it was a picture that I have seen many times before. But photography, as you know, has its own way of communicating. It's its own mediums do. And all I can tell you is that this picture caught hold of me. And in her eyes, this will sound very strange, but not to people who are really hip. Um, She kept trying to tell me something. I was sitting, sitting on the bed. And I, I remember distinctly saying, I would keep looking at the picture and keep looking at the picture. And, and of course, the memory of being with her many times kept coming, flooding back in my memory. But I said, and I remember inspiration is a very strange thing. Sometimes it just happens like a light. And I remember getting uh, a feeling in, in my body. And I said, that's it. To be young, gifted in black, that's all. And sat down at the piano at that moment and made up a tune. It, and it just flowed out of me. I knew what I wanted it to say in essence, but I couldn't get the words together. So I called up my musical director and told him what was on my mind, explained to him a little bit about Lorraine Hansberry because he didn't know her. And he captured the mood and the song was born less than two days later. And um, that's been less than a month ago. So I really think that she gave it to me. That's what I mean when I say that. To be young, gifted, and black Oh, what a lovely, precious dream To be young, gifted, and black Open your heart to what I mean You shouldn't leave now in the home. Um, yeah, I thought they should have ended the movie with that, but uh, they went back to another slide in the family stone. They might have thought yeah. that was too much of a statement. She said she did uh, to be young, gifted, and black, right? 
Yeah, that was good. And then the poem she read. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. was the, that was the intense part. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really good Netflix documentary. I thought it was PBS, but it's actually Netflix after I looked it up. It's called What Happened, Miss Simone. Oh. And anybody that really is interested in her life and her career should check that out because it's really, you know, it blows your mind. She's very uh, militant. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Her, her lyrics can be very, you know, will confront you. Uh. Um, she's not a pacifist. And not only in her music, but in, in, in things she's wrote and in interviews and stuff. And she went to school hard knocks. She had a very hard life. If you watch the documentary, she really suffered a lot of personal um, tragedy. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd like to check that out. And I want to check out the, the Mom's Mabley documentary too. Mm-hmm. It's cool to see her in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She said she had the one joke about the moon landing, which was an interesting. Uh, coincidental thing that happened during this. The we man landed on the moon first time during the festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the and, joke? Oh, her joke was uh, that she she went with him, but she, she had him let her out. She had them let her out of Baltimore. So. <laughs> <laughs> had him let her funny. out of Baltimore. <laughs> that is funny. Mm-hmm. Ironically, yeah, I found out. She's like a lesbian icon too. She was a she was a female stand up comic back in like the twenties and, and was open to wow. lesbian. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, there's I mean there's some, the stories that come Something from the personalities in this film. Mm-hmm. You know, it could go on forever, I'm sure. You know. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of, this is probably have documentaries on just chunks of this movie. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they can use that the, footage the whole, in the whole gospel documentaries. Thing. The Eddie Hawkins singers and the Staples singers and mm. Mahalia Jackson and all that. I was it, it got me thinking like how bland would gospel music be if it was all white? Mm. Right. And it, it got me thinking. Somebody said this said as much too. So maybe it's it was my second viewing. Maybe I'd already heard it. Mm. But uh, I think I was I was doing some work at the time too. But uh. um or posting something or typing something during the music. But this time I watched it more closely because I knew we were, you know, going to be talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I was like to think that the African people weren't even Christian prior to being enslaved and, you know, how much gospel music's now a part of the fabric of yeah. black America. But, um, yeah, that somebody, Greg Tate, mm-hmm. I guess he's a musician and maybe, maybe music historian. I can't remember his, mm-hmm. the credentials they put on, you know, with his name, but he said gospel was channeling the emotional core of the black people who were insiders as Christian. They experienced and redefined it for themselves. And that goes all the way back to the first moments, probably of black and black conversion to Christianity mm-hmm. hmm. said, he went on, there's something very specific about what happened in black America, where I think that, only place we could be fully expressive was in music, was in these church rituals. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, went back to, uh, I can't remember which of those, which of the acts it was. I think they did them back to back to back. Edwin Hawkins, Staples Singers, and Haley Jackson. And then uh, they had uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson. It's pretty cool to watch, too. That's mm-hmm. like, I think probably the height of his powers right there. You know, right. As far as his influence and his, uh, you know, his speaking and yeah. what uh, his oration well he had been with martin luther king mm-hmm. on the day he was you know on the so, uh, so had the guy playing sax with them mm. mm. yeah so it really hits home and i think mahalia jackson sang um at martin luther king's funeral that same same song he was he was telling the story that uh, he, right before martin luther king got shot he turned to the sax player and said you should play and said what, what the name of the song was. My favorite song. Looked up and bam. Yeah, Precious Lord. Precious Lord. Yeah, that's who. That's that's what she uh, sang. Uh, and Mahalia, I actually read. And you're talking about how you know the, um, the evolution of gospel or black gospel music, and 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 she was really committed. To, I mean, that was really her uh, genre. Oh yeah, black gospel music. Her direct grandparents were actually uh, slaves. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that for a fact, but it should be no surprise. Right. Probably born in the 1800s. Yeah. 
Mm. So uh, all those points you make are, are salient. I mean, uh, that uh, especially when you think of the um, a lot of the gospel music that comes down from um, Appalachia, mm-hmm. you know, that's forever going to have a country music relationship. But mm-hmm. Black gospel music has roots in blues. You know, it's really the origins of rock and roll. Roots of a lot. It, mm-hmm. you know, fish, that tension and release from gospel. That's a that's like a core tenet of their music. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frank Zappa has a lot of gospel tinged things. A lot of them uh, taking the piss out of televangelists, but, but he, <laughs> he loved. He had gospel and Motown are heavy in his you know influences. You can hear it. Yeah. Well, Zappa, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, he dabbles Friends. a little bit everything, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think what was notable, let, let's take, let's go ahead and take a break right here okay. for our sponsor. So let's talk about the people that didn't, didn't show that almost made it <laughs> to this, uh, <laughs> to the, to the festival. Okay. We're talking about the Harlem Cultural Festival in Mount Morris Park in July of 1969. So Aretha Franklin was scheduled to appear, and she was a late scratch. There's really no, it's kind of like trying to recapture uh, uh, something from uh, the Old West or something that wasn't documented in hieroglyphs or something. Nobody knows why she had to scratch, but she didn't make it. Uh, She was commonly known to miss gigs on a regular basis back then that was around the time when she was having substance abuse problems well here's okay here's one thing here's one theory uh-huh. what we know about aretha is that she insisted on being paid before she performed all throughout her career and if she wasn't paid she was not going to perform that's probably it so it may have been that mm-hmm. yeah yeah we, we were looking at the books yeah so I mean, that's one of those little side stories. But another thing that's shrouded in mystery is that apparently Jimi Hendrix wanted to play the festival. Um, that is also open to conjecture, but uh, yeah, that would have been yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd the Fly and the Family Stone were also not on the bill. They were kind of a surprise addition. Okay. Well, to make that cause you to wonder, maybe they substituted for somebody who had been slated to maybe. be there. One of the things they said about Sly, or what Questlove said about Sly and the Family Stone is that it was highly, uh, it was weird that they actually performed in street clothes. Yeah. Because to that point, most times a band like that would have had, you know, the same uh, matching suits, you know. um, Exactly. Yeah. So it was kind of startling. uh, One one guy in the movie said that uh, he and all his friends were suit and tie guys. Yeah, you know, they were Temptations fans and knew all the moves. Right. After, then we saw Sly. We were no longer suit and tie guys. Right, right, right. And I love that song. I love uh, Everyday People. That's a great yeah, song. Great yeah, they did that. That's There's one of so many great Sly and the Family Stone songs, man. Yeah. Um, it's that's that's a deep dive you could do. Yeah. <laughs> they were talking about um. How it's crazy that uh, they had a white drummer up there for Sly and the Family Stone, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get past his dark socks and sandals that he was rocking <laughs> up there. <laughs> yeah. That's a great look. Yeah, he probably carried that all the way up through his, uh, you know, old age. You know, he had the he had the uh, drum set turned to the side, also instead of like the bass drum facing out to the crowd, it was facing like stage right. Huh. Is that right? Stage right. When you're on stage, and it's to your right, I guess yeah. to uh, maybe for some sort of percussive effect, you think, or just yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, 
Maybe he wanted to show off his socks and sandals. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> Maybe the sun was in his eyes. They, yeah. They didn't have much money for lighting, any money for lighting. So they had to build the stage so it faced the sun. Right. Okay. There's a good point. Not a single that I could see. But there, there was no night performances in this no. film. Yeah. That's it, interesting. Yeah. Maybe they didn't. They, I Maybe guess a, they didn't secure the light. Or, I mean, it would take a tremendous. They didn't amount. have the lights for it. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to pay. Maybe it was a nine to five festival. Yeah, kind of. Maybe you're not going to pay more for the lighting than you do. uh, Sun sun goes down pretty late in summertime. True, true that. Yeah, and it's six weeks. and that's interesting. I mean, so how many of these shows took place? You know, together or? Yeah, be cool to piece that back together. I guess they showed the the bill. Probably showed who was playing what day. Right. Minus minus knowing when Sly played. Let's let's talk a little bit about what they talk about this concert having been overshadowed by Woodstock, and that it's doesn't uh, have the canon or it doesn't uh, it doesn't because well, nobody know. knew about it outside. Yeah, of, it sounds of like city. it didn't need it. It went so much better. Yeah, in ways it did. Yeah, and, but well, what if the guy who shot the movie? You know, he he kind of built it as tax or you know. Yeah, the guy who shot the movie for distribution was billing it as the Black Woodstock, and he said he couldn't get he couldn't sell it. Nobody was interested. Yeah, I think man, like the the Dolomite movies and stuff like that. How would he get distributed? Unless LSD. Yeah. How did don't um? How did the black exploitation movies you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Who was Pam Greer there? I didn't see Pam Greer, no. No. So. <laughs> that maybe, I mean, it's not like she's in but, but that's an interesting point that you say that now because now the people are seeing this footage from um, 50 years ago. 50 years. 52 years ago. They're seeing people in these crowds, these scans of the crowd, bright lit crowd, tight views of people. So, there were so. Right. There was there was like there was an instance that Questlove talks about where someone had lost their brother in Vietnam, Vietnam, and they had no other um, picture of him than this six second um, piece that that found its way on this film. And there were a number of instances like that. That I mean, it's just uh, yeah. Said so they keep pouring in almost every day. People expand the story now that it's out. Right. It's they're excavating these. Uh, so there, there, there could and should be sequels. Yeah. There's, there's threads to follow now. They could never find um, what's his name, Tony, right. Tony it, Lawrence. It, yeah, they could not find the organizer of the event. You know, nobody can attest to whether or not he's still alive. Um, whether you know, and, and you would think uh, here we are. The they, they know he had one son. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, this film won. Two awards at the Sundance Film Festival in January, the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award. Awesome. So that's January. Here we are in uh, September. Mm-hmm. In that amount of time, Tony Lawrence has not surfaced. So <laughs> nobody can really account for him. Yeah. When did it come out? On uh, I guess it was probably released February theatrically, right? I would say it was so. right around the same time as Nomadland. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that, that's plenty of time for him. Just to... when theaters started to reopen, though, mm-hmm. and it was also released simultaneously on Hulu. But I don't. I, I think more people should be watching this. I, I tried to shout it out at the time when I watched it, and you know, yeah, everybody should watch. It. Go out and watch. Pause this. Go out and watch it, and then come listen to the rest. Exactly. That told. I I pointed my sister to it. I know she'll enjoy it. She's yeah, oh, she loves Hugh Masekela, right? Right, right. He's in this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Significant few minutes. Um, so, yeah. He was singing and playing trumpet. Was yeah. that a trumpet or sax? Trumpet, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite performances, I have to say, was Oh Happy Day.
Yeah. I, I wanted to go back to the gospel a little bit. Yeah. The Edwin Hawkins singers. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, they, they, uh, they were Pentecostal and they weren't allowed to be out, you know, carousing and dancing and anything like that. They weren't allowed to go to clubs. So when they, uh, when they hit it big, they were shunned mm-hmm. by their church instead of, uh, instead of being celebrated for spreading the word. So they really put themselves out there. Yeah. With that one. They, they thought the world should have a happy day. About to the it's church. just a, such a great song, you know. That, it really is. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get more gospel. No. <laughs> I mean, just wash my sins away. Right. right. But uh, I, I guess coming from the church, uh, I can see uh, if you're going to embrace that uh, yeah, theology. If you notice, they'd stand, they'd stand stock still pretty much. they barely move while they're singing. They weren't dancing. Mm-hmm. Just uh, some mouth contortions to get those words out a little bit. Right. You know, like you see singers do. You ever watch Barbershop Quartet singers? Um, yes, I do. Yes, I have. They do, they do some crazy facial exaggerations to get certain sounds. Right. I know that Fish spent the period studying Barbershop Quartet music. They occasionally do acapella stuff. Sort of contorting their mouth yeah yeah opening the, up to- the bass player saw, saw some still photos one time from a show trying to guess what they were singing based on what you know what they were doing with their mouths it's that pronounced that's yeah it, but it that's good. Good. I, I saw some of that in in the singer for oh happy day she was like you know really moving moving her mouth to get some sounds just the way she wanted right but there's Thank a now sharpton gospel quote in there too Right. Gospel was more than religious. Gospel was the therapy for the stress and pressure of being black in America. We didn't go to a psychiatrist. We didn't go lay on a couch. We didn't know anything about therapists, but we knew Mahalia Jackson. Yeah. Well, when you think about Jackson and Sharpton. Jesse, not Mahalia. Jesse, yeah. And how the, you know, how things evolved. And, and and the media became so huge as time evolved and, and people that uh, prominence um, kind of get entangled in, in politics and rhetoric. But this was a time when they were most, like you said before, most um, vital. Yeah. Most, to the movement. Yeah, it was their time. Like it, I know it, that, is, it is peak, yeah. Was, I know that. Like, uh, like a ball player in their prime i'd say in his prime maybe right so and, and his little glimpses are are interesting and yeah very cool yeah i can see why jesse jack you know jesse jackson was on stage you know he was uh um presenting yeah you know charismatic and commanding yeah so it's just a great it is a great film and i thank you for pointing it out to me and i hope we sure. have done justice to it um, in our stumbling, bumbling way. <laughs> and I would yeah, recommend, recommend anybody watch this movie that loves music for sure. Absolutely. So why don't we just, I'm going to go out. Let's go out. I'm just going to mention some of the songs that are in it. This, uh, unless, do you have anything else to add, Aaron? Um, there's some artists that we didn't touch on, I guess. Yeah. Um, Sonny Chirac. He uh, had this wild, guitar solo i it was incredibly intense and um, i forget what that what it was called but it was basically they, they said this this was the sound of, of pain in harlem black america or whatever mm-hmm. and it became the soundtrack of, of some other editing that was going on that quest love did such a good job can't stress i don't know yeah this is really well done we should point out again, also, Questlove, if you don't know, he's the band leader of The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> In oh, addition yeah, the, to The Roots. Yeah, The, the, the Roots. Which is the house band, band for The yeah. Tonight Show. So. Yeah, The Roots play on uh, The Tonight Show. Right. It's his, his band, The Roots. Right. Yeah. Um, he's, um, he's the drummer. Right? Mm-hmm. He's very fun. Yeah, he's he, uh, Jimmy, you know, he's a, kind of a sidekick sometimes. Yeah. Some things, I, you know. I don't usually watch Fallon, but... Uh, I always did like Questlove. Yeah. Roots. And uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and just name some of the songs that are in it for reference here. Um, this is not all the songs highlighted in the movie and of course not in the festival, but 
We had my girl, right? The, the guy that left the Temptations, Ruffin. Is it David Ruffin? Ruffin? Yeah. David Ruffin. That was, that was pretty incredible. And that note he hits is just insane. Mm-hmm. Um, to be gifted, to be young, gifted, and black by Nina Simone. Um, yeah, so that was that was great. That that song actually comes from a stage play, I believe, or a musical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something that was going on, some kind of live performance on Broadway. Yeah, and I don't know if she performed. She might have performed this. It, it was not a musical, but she took the title and made a song. Okay, um, from that documentary, one of the song, one of the songs I really loved by her was Mississippi Goddamn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if she performed that at the festival, but I really. Yeah, I've I've, I've watched footage of her performing that before. Yeah, I don't know if it's from that doc. I'll have to check it out. But it's just very, uh, you know, you can't take your eyes off of her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Everyday People by Sly and the Family Stone, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Very notable performance. Really good. Aquarius. Um, Sly and the Family Stone. That one woman said, uh, "See a black woman playing the trumpet made me feel great." Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Aquarius, let the sunshine in by the fifth dimension, of course. That's one that we talked about there. That was amazing. Yeah. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. Gladys Knight and the Pips did Heard It Through the Grapevine. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, uh, the Marvin Gaye, uh, I don't know if Marvin Gaye, was Marvin Gaye the original? Um, I don't know. It's a Motown song, so it probably went around, you know, between... Yeah, there's probably several artists that recorded it. did a version. Yeah. But the thing that struck me about that is that Gladys Knight and the Pips were huge at the time. And when they hit the stage, they looked like the most professional outfit in the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, they the, the Pips all shared one microphone and yeah. did all that choreography. That was nutty. Yeah. Excuse me, hon. Now. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring up some folks. I was nervous. We were so excited about being there. We join our hands and say prayers before we went on stage. Gladys Knight! Now, when I stepped on stage, I was totally, totally taken aback because I didn't expect a crowd like that. And the pips! That um, that Spanish music, uh, Mango Santa Maria. Did you notice that? I saw. Mm-hmm. I, I I have to review it for those types of details. Um. <laughs> it's like Stevie Wonder is just amazing. Everything he did. Yeah, yeah. Stevie mm-hmm. Wonder, fantastic. Uh, then take my Lord, uh, take my hand, precious Lord, Mahalia Jackson. I thought was notable. Very. Um, mm-hmm. You know, amazing. You kind of passed the torch too to uh, Mavis Staples. Mm-hmm. Right. She gave. Yeah. You know, they shared the same microphone, and then she handed it to her at the one point. Right, and I think that uh, I, I also read that Mahalia passed away Probably three years after this. Yeah, she was not very old either. But... No, but she didn't look really in great health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we mentioned why I sing the blues, BB King. Uh, grazing. Yeah, those, are some, those are some int- intense lyrics too. Yeah. About being on the slave ship. Yeah. Right, right. So many. Uh... But, um, yeah, like one one line somebody said that that concert was like a rose coming through cement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I heard it through the grapevine. It's a song written by Norwin, excuse me, Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong. For Motown Records in 1966. Yeah, Shout out to my birth song that went out to everybody. Yeah. The first recording of the song to be released was produced 
by Whitfield for Gladys Knight and the Pips and released as a single in September of 1967. It went to number one on the Billboard R&B singles chart and number two on the Billboard Pop singles chart. Not bad. Pop crossover. And shortly became the biggest selling Motown single to date. The B-side was Your What's Happening in the World Today. Um, It was released in October of 1968, recorded in February and April of 67, Hitsville, USA Studio in Detroit, Michigan. Makes sense. Um, Let's see. A lot happened in Detroit in those days. Barry Gordy Mm -hmm. had the whole thing rolling. That's where Aretha's from, too. Oh, yeah. Hmm. The Miracles Maybe. actually recorded it first in 1966, but their version was not released until 68. That's always the um, story with these songs. Yeah. Marvin Gaye's version was the second to be recorded in the beginning of 67, but the third to be released. It was placed on the 1968 album In the Groove a year and a half later, where it gained the attention of radio DJs. And Motown founder Barry Gordy finally agreed to its release as a single in October of 68. In the Groove. Where it also went to the top of the pop singles chart. Please. In the Groove is a great name for an album. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, my favorite, I have to say, my favorite version of that is Marvin Gaye's version. Mm -hmm. But I got to jump back to Stevie Wonder saying, just because the record's got a groove, don't make it in the groove. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah, you can feel that. And, all and over. not bad. Yeah. Not bad voice, Aaron. <laughs> um, when I know what I'm imitating, I can do it all right. And then, of course, our friend uh, Hugh Mascala. Yeah. Grazing in the grass. And um, did he have like a female partner with? Oh, no, that was Max Roach and Abby Lincoln. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, things I do not know. Yeah. I think. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've got a big job ahead of me here, but I think mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think I think we did our best. We uh, paid yeah. tribute to a great, yes. great uh, movie soundtrack. You great know, movie. do yourself a favor. Mm-hmm. Stop a listening to the podcast. All right, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us. It's been yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Lisa and Phil. And Phil. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being head frequent flyer, Aaron. Oh, it's been yeah. lovely. All right. Talk to you later. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. It's Lisa. And Phil. From Yeah, Uh Uh-huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have social. Twitter. Yeah, uh uh-huh pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh uh-huh pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh uh-huh pod. Notice Notice a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.